The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Good morning, Lisa Michaels. Good morning, Moth. How you been? I bet, you know, I've been spending my time... um, cooking rice because there's nothing else in my cabinet i've been playing i've been playing a lot of final fantasy 10 2 which is where you play as three strong strangely dressed female characters and you change outfits a lot how different um, exactly i was about to say it's, it's not too far from my real life um maybe a little bit uh harder to <laughs> unplug from so i see that me and you have something in common besides being queer i don't like going to the grocery store either I, and sometimes i will put it off for a couple weeks at a time and it gets pretty friggin' scary sometimes. i do not want to shake melons at the grocery store like it's never it's never any fun grocery stores are never any fun the floors never look good but the celestial like going and choosing vegetables i have a bit that i do where I'm like, you know what? I hate grocery stores so much. Now I'm a vegetarian. When I walk into a grocery store, I'll take off my silken glove, touch everything in the meat section, and then go over to the organic vegetable section, touch all the vegetables just to ruin it for everybody else. Cause I'm so sick of grocery stores. I want like you're evil. I am. I am. I want them to beam my groceries directly into my home. Like the less, amount of time that I have to spend outside in the world looking at other people right now. Wow. The better. Moth. But, humanitarian at large. Hey, it says on my Instagram, I am the Emily Dickinson of drag. So you want to come tap on my window. I will get my clothesline and I will send you candied pieces of bacon because that's something that Emily Dickinson used to do for the no- local neighborhood kids. But she would never leave the house. So I used, I, when I lived in the mountains back in California, there was this home where um, this I don't know if it was a woman or a man or who lived there, but they would put out little toys for children, little figurines, and they could take them if they wanted to. But it was it was kind of magical. It was, you know, one of those moments. Where, like I will eventually mature into <laughs> my full <laughs> swamp witch these. mode. I scoff at. Them. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and and fifty, sixty years, you can find me in the middle of a forest somewhere, a little gingerbread house like that. I've. Of Time course, out. shared with. We're Jackson. still going to be here fifty or sixty years from now. Of course, we will. Uh-huh. Of course, we will. AOC has got us. The world is burning, Ma. <laughs> She'll the turn world it around. Is burning. Well, and the meek will inherit the earth. So get ready for like for a little bit of Thunderdome action. I thought it was the geeks <laughs> were going to inherit the earth. Now you tell me. God damn it. <laughs> so, Lisa, how, how have you been? What have you been up to? Uh, I've been doing a lot of shows. I've been on the yeah, road you, quite a bit. You've been uh, busy, girl. I've been to North Carolina recently for the Comedy Fest. I went there with Richard Douglas Jones. That was a lot of fun. Was in Huntsville, Alabama a couple weeks ago doing comedy. My band's got a couple gigs lately at the High Tone and the PNH. My band is called Midtown Queer. Woo! In case anybody in the world what, what? didn't know that. Uh, and I had toe surgery. And that's you did why. have toe surgery. And it sucks. And today, Lisa is, is sporting a beautiful dark blue top, a turquoise skirt, and then two very stylish shipoos. I beg your pardon. <laughs> I don't that's use right. that I kind said, of language. I said shipoos. Because that's the only thing that I could call those. Fuzzy slippers, y'all. <laughs> They're fuzzy walking slippers. Around, fuzzy slippers. A grown-ass woman walking around in daytime in fuzzy slippers. I mean, because, it's Memphis. <laughs> well, it's true. No, no, I mean, nobody batted an eye when the other night when I was at the high tone. No. Nope. It's like, okay. <laughs> They're like, I think I saw her at Cash Saver at some point in time. <laughs> you always see, you go to Cash Saver. Because, like, I spent many years in Midtown. You go to Cash Saver, you are going to see fuzzy slippers 
and you're going to see some acrylic nails just like scattered about the aisles. And you're going to be offered a Percocet in the parking lot. I've never been offered Percocet I was, in the parking lot. was it lot. Laura said? I get those sets messed up. <laughs> but Jesus, yes. Oh my gosh. Uh, I have many fond memories of Cash Saver. Yeah. Yeah, especially being a former MCA student. But uh, Lisa, we've got a really cool show oh, today. Hell yes, we do. We got some bonafide awesome people in this room. We do. Today, we don't have just one friend with us. We don't just have two friends with us. We've got three friends no way, in our living room people? today. Oh, my yeah, goodness. I know. So we're going to split this up into yet another special two-part episode. So everybody, stay tuned. We're going to have our individual interviews first and then for the second part we're gonna round table so please stay tuned and uh you ready to get into it Miss lisa michaels ready Matthew. let's do this then let's just go from left to right um can each of you introduce yourselves tell us where you're from what your name is what you do and why you like us so much <laughs> hi i am aubrey depew i am the founder and creative director of qcg productions here in memphis where i am originally from just moved back two years ago this month um, and I just think you guys are magical. Thank you. We're rather fond of you too, yes. darling. And you're fun to look at. So there's that. <laughs> oh, likewise. <laughs> it's because we're so cute. It is. I am John Michael Alderson. Uh, I am the director of development and community engagement, which basically means I get to throw parties at Friends for Life Corporation. Oh, yes. Yeah, I moved here uh, to Memphis in uh, 2016, and I'm from Louisville, Kentucky originally, where I lived under the... Uh, Veil of Catholicism for many years, um, and then uh, actually had my formative uh, cotillion, if you will, coming out uh, most queer experiences in New Orleans, Louisiana, which definitely formed me into the odd creature I have become. So Hallelujah. That yes. will pull it out of you. <laughs> and I love you guys because I feel like things every month, honestly, week to week sometimes feel like things are like the experiences in Memphis are just continue to grow and get bigger and better and more colorful. And y'all are definitely part of that. So thank you. You're, thank you. Um, I'm Kara McLean, and um, we're not going to get into what I do professionally (laughs) because of corporate stuff. Um, But outside of my um, professional life, I just recently stepped down as the um, director of operations for Memphis Comedy Festival. Um, I am part of Lady Parts Justice Tennessee, and um, I also am, uh, I I got to run Condemonium this year, and I've done that for three years now. Um, so I kind of just jump in wherever I think I'm needed and do things. <laughs> I, I feel you there. I think that every single one of us, us has that trait, that quality of destiny will afford me whatever opportunities I can handle in the moment. Exactly. And, uh, and we all take it and run itself, You just grab it. You know? Exactly. Or hide from it. I've been doing a lot of hiding <laughs> lately. I've been under a rock for a little while. Um, but we're getting back out in there. So, Miss Aubrey, let's Hi. start with you. Oh, and our other friends, during each individual interview, like, feel free to comment, chime in. If you think that something is important, please jump in. Heretic! Uh, no. <laughs> Not the first time that I've heard that. What's that? What's that? The, like, it's only the fifth ring of hell. Like, I can take that. It's fine. It's fine. I'll have fun. But um, so if you all want to chime in. Uh, please do. Please do. This is not a very 
it's not a very stiff podcast. We're very flexible. <laughs> we're a very flexible <laughs> podcast. So Miss Aubrey. Hi. Hi. Where'd you grow up? I did grow up here in Memphis. I was here until I was 18 and then I moved quite a bit. I did a year stint in Alabama for this thing called college. And then I went from there to New York, did two and a half years there. Then I went to LA, finished my bachelor's out there, stayed out there for a collective five years, moved back to New York for a year and a half and then moved back here. She's jet set. So what, tell me a little bit about that journey of, because I've, yeah, I've never lived outside of Tennessee my entire life. Bless your heart. I'm, I'm very interested in like what took you to each place. So thankfully, I grew following? up with my father being a pilot. So traveling and having different experiences was always something that they instilled in me and my sister, my mom and my dad, um, because my dad's a pilot. My mom was a flight attendant and then she got knocked up with me and I was her retirement package. So, um, <laughs> hey, it's true. Um, best thing that ever happened to her. Um, that wasn't arrogant at all. Anyway, um, you can be arrogant on this podcast. (laughs) Lord knows I am. So, um, traveling was always a thing and, um, I have always had a lot of energy. Mm -hmm. Um, so in kindergarten, my mother put me in theater to try to give me an outlet. So I grew up doing performances, you know, local theater, community theater, step with school, um, and, and being artistic in that sense, um, wasn't the most athletic child ever, um, did volleyball for a year in high school and whatnot, but oh, um, I bet you can serve it to him though. <laughs> I was actually not very good. I only did it freshman year. Um, and then they made me choose between the school did, uh, between, um, volleyball and theater. And of course I was like, uh, I don't theater. understand why schools do that. It was yeah, that scheduling quote unquote. And I was just like, they do that with like the science programs. They do that with the art programs. They do that with sports. So you're what not you allowed to both? be an intelligent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, and I I wish I would have stuck with volleyball, but at the same time, it was like theater and, and performance has always been my thing. And that's what I'm passionate about. So, of course, I was going to choose that. And uh, yeah, my my butt does not look as good as it did when I played volleyball. Hey, Your hey, butt looks plenty it, fun. It, it just <laughs> looks beautiful in a different way. There we go. From different angles, too. <laughs> there you go. Upside down, right side up. But we got it all covered. So, um, you know, I, I followed that path going uh, to school for a bachelor's in performing arts. Um which, I mean, I guess I use it these days, but, um, so I went originally to a, um, school called University Montevallo. It's a, um, fine arts school in the middle of nowhere, Alabama. Literally, it's an hour south of Birmingham. Tiny little arts town, little rural arts school. And it was awesome. Um, their homecoming is based around musical theater. You're either a purple or a gold and each side writes their own musical. The students write it, produce it, direct it, costume it, write the music, play the music. It's completely. So that's what drew you to the school. There it, was, yeah. There's interesting stuff cooking. It was so cool. And even though it's in the middle of conservative, conservativeville, USA, it was like, oh, wow, this this could be my space. And I loved it. I thought it was awesome. Um, and then Please I tell me you chose purple. I was a purple, <laughs> yes. Uh, PV, if anybody knows what that means. Um, but yeah, so I was a purple, and that was really cool. And then um, I had originally wanted to go to AMDA, the American Musical and Dramatic Academy, but they didn't have a bachelor's program. Uh, my like mentor, Jade Bartlett, she um, she went there and did the conservatory program. But my parents were like, "You need to have a bachelor's," you know, like every middle America, you know, family says. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, "Damn it!" So I went to Montevallo, and then. 
AMDA got a bachelor's program. So um, I was like, all right, I'm going to do that. So moved up to New York, did the first half there. And then I did the second half out in Los Angeles. So I got to focus on musical theater, um, Shakespeare, classical text, all that stuff when I was living in New York. And then in LA, I got to focus a lot on the film side of things, um, television, that sort of stuff, as well as musical theater, um, because each each coast is very different um, on the way that they run things. It's very, very interesting um, to be in the same same industry and work with all the same people but the 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 styles of things and are the cultures being so different oh my gosh, can so you tell different. us a little bit about like what are the drastic differences between working on each coast <laughs> so in new york um i it was instilled into me if you are not at least 15 minutes early you are in fact late um and so you and i were really late this morning (laughs) (laughs) um so it's it's been interesting because when i moved to la i would show up you know 15 minutes early and the people that i was meeting you know the people who were supposed to be the the big guys in charge and stuff are 20 30 minutes late and i'm like really like do you just not take this seriously like what's the deal um you know i'm very much a new yorker as opposed to um an Angelino, if you will. Um, I'm very much a fast paced person on the go, get there, get it done on to the next one. Um, and I guess, you know, LA, I hated sitting in traffic for, you know, an hour and a half everywhere. Preach, preach. Um, you know, I, I could talk for hours about that. I mean, I'll talk for hours regardless. I'm a rambler. So if you need to cut me off, please do. <laughs> Baby, you and me both. Well, and actually, you set us up for a great transition. So we've talked about New York. We've talked about LA. I've already transitioned. Baby, Lisa's already transitioned. She's way ahead of us. There we go. She, she's, er, she's early when it comes to something. It's true. <laughs> no, I'm very late when it comes to things. Anyway, let's go. Um, Tell me about, so Memphis brought you back. The Memphis undertow brought you back. And Memphis showbiz is way different than showbiz elsewhere. So when I left Memphis, Memphis (laughs) there was no Overton Square. It was a ghost town. There were, there was Drew's. When I left, there was still Backstreet. Um, and those were really the only queer spaces that I knew of. I left when I was 18, though. So I had, I had never been to Drew's until I came back here um, as an adult. And I had been to Backstreet on, on not legally. <laughs> um, oh, my God. No. <laughs> you and my boyfriend may have met at some point. There we go. Um, I did go there above 18, um, I think, twice. But um, there wasn't a lot of queer spaces. And at that point in time, too, I you know wasn't. I've always been out there. I don't really have a coming out story um, because my parents have always, you know, love is love. Like, you know, as long as you're happy, we don't give a hell. So, um, you know, that was never a thing for me. But um, Memphis, when I came back, so I came back to visit for New Year's Eve because my parents still lived here. They don't live here anymore. They're down in Florida. Um, And... Uh, a lot of my friends had either moved away or like they're married or, you know, we just don't have similar interests anymore. Um, the people that I'd grown up with and I got on Tinder and I met a girl um, and we met up for drinks and I fell head over heels in love with her. And we did long distance for five months when I was living in New York. And then the opportunity presented itself for me to move down here um, instead of staying up there and to be with her. And, um, you know, I was coming back and visiting a lot and, you know, I was going to be closer to my family and I had started, you know, really making connections in the queer community. And so I jumped at that opportunity and I left a lot of really wonderful things in New York. Um, but I don't regret any of it. Um, you know, I learned a lot from that experience and stuff and, 
and whatnot. And I had a great time and I'm going to go back and visit as much as I can. But, you know, Memphis is definitely um, it's it's become its own like creative hub, if you will, um, especially in the queer community um, and and be becoming an intersectional community as well, because you're seeing so much, yes. you know, with, yes, with yes, yes. you know, your your cis white community, if you will, um, you know, welcoming in, you know, drag culture and, and different stuff like that, too. So it's it's really interesting to see how much things have grown, not just in the past 10 years, but in the past like two years um, with with acceptance and growth. And, and the fact that we're in the middle of the Bible Belt says a lot, too. So um, I'm super excited to be back in Memphis. You know, it, it's my two year anniversary moving back this month and I couldn't be happier. So welcome back. Yeah, welcome back. Thank home, you. Baby. So already you really you're the type that hits the ground running. But that's something. <laughs> and and I admire you a lot. Because you radiate energy that says, I am on top of this. I've got this <laughs> taken care of. Like, and you have that spunk of like, you move through things very quickly. You don't have, you're not operating on Memphis time. Not at and all. You're certainly not <laughs> operating on drag time. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> which is something that I, I love and admire so oh, much thanks, about you. Baby. So please tell me a little bit about your business and your projects that you have going on right now. Yeah. So I started QCG Productions back um, right after Pride last year. So um, Chris and Stephanie over at Spectrum had asked um, me to get a group of you know aerialists together um, who had performed at um, Spectrum previously before they had closed down. And so I got a group together and, you know, we got our equipment and we rigged up and we had an amazing time. And then they were like, all right, we want to do monthly parties. So let's, you know, keep this going. Um, and then we put on a huge production there for Halloween. Um, body painted aerialists, doubles routines, fire breathers, fire eaters, contortionists, like you name it, we had it. Um and Stephanie Wilbanks and, and I and Kristen Smith had all talked, you know, at one point about, you know, making this a thing. And Stephanie, when she got on stage, you know, when we finished one of our acts in the show, she goes, Queer Circus Girl Productions, everybody. And I was like, oh, oh, she is right. Um, <laughs> and then so but, I you know, I'm, I'm big on on, like I said, being inclusive and stuff. And I didn't want I, I never want anything to just be about me mm -hmm. um so we changed it to qcg productions so queer circus group productions um i am on instagram at queer circus girl so that's where it all came from but um we are as far as i know the only um performance troupe of the circus variety in the country that is 100% queer identifying or allies. Um, so we're very, very involved with the queer community. Obviously you guys see us a lot, um, but we're also very open and very accepting to um, anyone. However, they identify. You like straight people. I, I, yeah, you know, I, I masqueraded as one for a little bit. Um, you know, it was easier, but they're lovely. They're a fascinating bunch. Right. I love, I love watching their behavior. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, <laughs> like out in their natural environment. Like it's so interesting. Like you go and sit in a Starbucks mm. and like watch them move about their day and think about like, what do, what do they worry about? What they, like what's going through their minds? Like, you know, do they see different colors than I do? <laughs> you know, it's so funny though, too, because we, we get, um, booked on a bunch of things that, that, you know, you wouldn't really consider queer friendly. We do a lot of benefits. We do a lot of stuff for middle-aged white dudes who want to throw badass parties. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and being a, a femme lesbian, it's, it's so funny whenever they're like, Oh, well, what does QCG stand for? And I'm like, Oh, queer circus group. And they're like, queer. I'm like, yeah, as, it's as in, as in not, not 
white, straight, cis, hetero. Yeah. Like, <laughs> let me let, let me explain what this is. And it's so funny, too, because I get a lot of people who think because um, I know back, you know, queer used to not be. A word that we embrace. No, it was derogatory. And we exactly. talked about that on this podcast before, you know, different generations of, of LGBT plus folks um, receive the word queer very differently. Yeah. Uh, even Tammy Montgomery, the owner of Drew's, it kind of throws her off. A very fascinating conversation with, it was an episode that we did with um, Tammy and uh, Holly Calvacino from uh, Choices. Choices. And it was just, it was so great to have a conversation about the word queer because I feel my personal feelings are that it's a great place to rest. Like queer is an incredibly in- inclusive and flexible word, which I'm all about being inclusive and flexible. <laughs> so hug everybody and uh, be able to bend over backwards if you need to. I so as you say that. that to a proportion, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was about to say, I, let me speak her language here first. But um, so tell me a little bit about about the future what what are your projections do you have a spreadsheet i, I have like a you, lot of spreadsheets like you have a lot of my, spreadsheets. my google drive right now is it's just bombarded with spreadsheets it's it's a little ridiculous and a little honestly a little overwhelming at times because i am go 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 and, and um it's growing like what you're creating is growing so quickly um tell me just start telling me about that so, you know, it never really, we just had a couple people. So when I first started, you know, it was me and Cooper Hinky and Abby Crenshaw and, and basically the people that I had worked with in the past, um, with a previous aerial company, um, who didn't work with them anymore. And I had reached out and I'm like, Hey, are you still interested? And so then we kind of started building upon that, um, and, and starting to invite people in that we either thought had a lot of potential to be, um, a performer with us as far as their strength and their, um, athletic ability as well as their performance capabilities um and it's just kind of grown from there um to where we have 45 performers on our yeah um not all of them are here in memphis um like we have uh danny Steele. she's based out of las vegas but she's from here she was actually in our show at drew's um last uh that we did with hoist and friends for life two weeks ago two weeks ago um and uh mel hyde who's um out of Nashville. Um, she comes and performs with us. She was also at the Drew show. Then you also have, um, Miss May. She's up in Pittsburgh at, um, Circadian, the circus Institute up there. She's a featured performer with them. So, so um, you're building family all over the place. Yeah. And it's been, model. it's been really, really neat. And it's, it's exciting too to know that like, you know, we can, we can expand and we can grow and we're getting people reaching out to us on social media now of, Hey, you know, I'm going to be passing through Memphis while I'm on tour. I really want to work with you guys or, you know, if you guys have a show, I'd love to, you know, fly down or whatever. So it's, it's really kind of just built on its own. Um, I mean, yeah, I do a lot of, of social media marketing and stuff, but, um, so I, but, I have a question. Uh-huh. There's always that practice makes perfect. So y'all do some scary stuff. Have you ever been hurt doing what you're doing or you, you yes. Know. Um, I burnt myself last night playing with fire. Oh, damn. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Uh, Another right here. But it, you can't tell. Um, yeah. So, um, I eat fire and, uh, I, I was doing a performance last night and I was just, I, I, uh, I got a little reckless with it. Not going to lie. Um, cause you just get caught up in the moment and I missed my mouth at one point, but I'm obviously <gasps> oh, fine. No. I'm obviously fine. It's just like the equivalent of a sunburn. Um, but as far as Ariel is concerned, about five years ago, I fell about 12 feet and um, I dislocated my sacrum. Um, so that's the bone right above your tailbone that's supposed to be like parallel to the ground. Well, it was at a 45 degree angle. So that was the worst 
injury I've gotten from it. Um, you know, we deal a lot with scrapes, cuts, bruises, you know, sprains, all that stuff. I mean, it's very physically well, you're demanding. Ath- you're athletes. Mm-hmm. You have to be an athlete. I have been this. to their fundraisers where they're literally in a bar pouring drinks from the ceiling. Mm-hmm. I have seen this with my own eyeballs. Yes, we have done that. And it's it's fun. We we really enjoy it. And that's the beautiful thing, too. It's, you know, we we get to have fun doing what we're doing. But also we we are very, very aware of of the fact that, you know, we have to be careful. We have to be, you know, cognizant of where we are, where we are, what we're doing, who's around us, you know, muscle fatigue you know making sure that we drank enough water before and after and all this stuff there's a, there's a lot that goes into it and the fact that we practice um two to three times a week minimum you know oh we gosh. we have to stay on top of it you so know? y'all have a practice space there's yes. a dedication yeah we're we're very very dedicated we um thankfully spectrum lets us use their space when they're not in use um so during the week we're able to get in there and rig and and you know stephanie and Kristen have been very gracious with that and jerry westland has allowed us to use that space so um it's it's very it's very nice that we have that you know that um sort of support from the community and you know they use us for all of their events and stuff and and they you know Stephanie and Kristen really were the ones who were like, hey, you can do this. And and I owe a lot to them, you know, and Will Banks is, is one hell of a businesswoman. And Kristen just comes up with some crazy, amazing genius ideas. And and so it's been really nice to have, you know, people who have ran successful businesses in throwing parties and, and, you know, doing events, you know, on your side and like really cheering for you. And this this whole community, that's been one really amazing thing. And I contribute the the fast growth we've only really been around you know six months and and now we're you know, we're booked out until March of next year so and I contribute that to the queer community and to the people who have you know taken a chance on us and and you know booked us our first gig outside of Spectrum was working with John Michael with Friends for Life for the um for the Moulin Rouge party and he had never seen our work um up until after he had already booked us he came to the the show at Spectrum and um. And he had never seen our work before and he took a chance on us. And that was one of the most incredible experiences ever. You know, we had three aerialists up in, in the air at, uh, at Alchemy and we just had the times of our lives. And, and it's just kind of blown up from there. You know, each each event that we do, we keep, you know, creating new acts or t- having a new take on something we've done before. And, and really, it, it's pushing us to do things that not only haven't been seen here in Memphis, but haven't been seen Ever. Right on. So you're building a really great repertoire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So speaking of parties and John Michael, <laughs> shall shall we transition into our friend across the table? Absolutely. Um, okay, parties. When I think parties, well, okay. I want to dial it back and talk about, you know, we're talking about people that have cheered us on and lifted us up. And these two people right here. Since I was a gross little pancake white bug <laughs> trying to just like wayfind and figure out where I fit in the community. And I'm still trying to figure that out. You know, the people but, at home could not see where you were pointing at. So you might want to point. But Kara and John both yes. um, gave me so much confidence and and just getting to work with y'all on the occasions that I've been honored to. Those were moments, those were the moments where, and Lisa, and Lisa, the first time that I felt like a star was when I performed in the basement of Condemonium, of, of Condemonium with Lisa. And that was the first time that people had ever like, chanted my name. So like getting to work with, with y'all on, like, I think about Taco Fest yes. with you and like getting to do any work for Lady Parts Justice was such an honor and uh, getting to work Art Dash yeah. and host, it was 
just oh by the way so i have a funny story about that so i pooted the entire time that i was on stage because <laughs> i was so nervous and i was wearing this like big gorgeous headdress that i'd made out of recycled materials and a ralph lauren dress that i had dyed wine purple and there was a reason i kept slipping over to the corner and putting on more perfume oh, damn. <laughs> because i was so nervous that night That's and i want because it was such an honor to be a part of that so i was like i got i get nervous i get the poots watch out our audiences <laughs> Good to but, know. You know, those rumors about me being a devil worshiper stem from the fact that I smell like sulfur sometimes. <laughs> but damn. all that aside, John Michael. I totally want to book you now. It's just all over again. Yeah. <laughs> just with a warning. I don't. With, with a good warning. No, I, I've, I've come to accept it <laughs> as, as a quirk of my character. <laughs> one of many. So, John Michael, you're the party guy. Nobody throws parties like you do. Oh, well, nobody yeah. does. Thank you. Um, I, I, you know, certainly I, I feel like that is um, like 10% me coming up with crazy ideas, like 50% Diane Duke, my amazing, wonderful boss saying, uh, sure, whatever. I just put a projection together and make sure it happens. <laughs> and then the rest of it is honestly the community coming together. Cause I think that's one of the things that strikes me about, about Memphis and about the mid South is that there is this hunger for things that are like big and different and over the top. And I don't know how you guys feel, but I feel like just in three years, there is this like, sort of tension in the city where you can feel like while there are some other cities that I feel like they're kind of like um, LGBT queer community is sort of not, it's not necessarily going away, but it's becoming less kind of in the foreground. I feel like here in Memphis, it's coming into its own. Mm -hmm. We're like in this new era, which is awesome. So, uh, and you know, honestly, having only been here for a few years, I don't, I, I can't say that I've, I've seen it you know, in, in the past, but uh, I hear all of these stories about how, you know, people are always like, Oh, back in the day we had this and this was so big. We had this and that and the other. Um, so it's just kind of exciting to be able to step into a role where I get to do my job, which is to raise funds to help people who are affected by HIV or people who are, you know, wanting to seek prevention around uh, HIV or STIs, but also to kind of like step into the experience that I want for myself, which is to see a community that is, you know, supportive and, and comes together and does invest in new talent and does really kind of um, just all, all, all boats rise with the tide kind of mentality where it's like, if we can throw a party that allows, you know, all of everyone at this table to bring something new and different and exciting to it, even if that's just coming to the party and being part of the energy. I mean, that's awesome. And it, it makes me feel very happy to be here. Yeah, definitely. So let's take a pen in that. Let's all talk right. about how you got here. Yes. In the first place. Like, t- tell me the story of John Michael. Oh, <laughs> it was raining the day I was born. We have, we have, we have 15 minutes. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So I um, actually, uh, as I mentioned, I was uh, born and raised uh, actually outside of Louisville, raised in Louisville, Kentucky, which um, at the time I was completely unaware that Louisville was this little island of progressive thought, you know, because, you know, you grow up in Kentucky and you think, wow, Kentucky. Mm. Um, <laughs> but uh, coming, I came out when I was like 21. So, you know, I, I, I sort of in high school had this feeling of being different, which I think is something we all sort of have, right? Where you're like, I just don't feel like I fit in. I didn't really feel like I fit in. I love my family, but I never feel like I, I never felt like I was born into the right family. <laughs> As a kid, I had this Victorian room where all these cast off antiques that they had. I was like, let me create a beautiful Victorian parlor in my basement when I'm eight years old. And I'm sure my mom's like, you're not gay at all. <laughs> this is very illuminating. <laughs> yeah, it totally is. Actually, I was just really having cool. a conversation about this where I feel like 
as a kid, creating spaces that I could kind of curate was really important to me. And I feel like that's more or less what I get to do in my job. And I'm so grateful for that because it's, you know, having that experience where like it lives for a day and then it's gone forever, at least until the next one, you know, is kind of a cool thing to do. Yeah. But um, I grew up in a very odd situation in which my mother was came from an extremely conservative German Catholic family. And my Ooh. dad was an Elvis impersonator. <laughs> Yeah, whom I've met. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Who came to one of my shows? Actually, was crushing out on you a little bit, and I was like, (laughs) "Okay, he was marvelous. He was such a sweetie pie." Yeah, so um, I had that little. I'm a lot to take in. (laughs) Well, you met my dad. That's that's that's. There are. It's a lot of uh, velour and uh, polyester that happens there too. (laughs) To my favorite fabrics. His whole thing is like he's trying to be Elvis like two days after Elvis died. You know. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so. I had the kind of like experience of like showmanship on a like home stage, family room stage. Right. And then, uh, you know, this sort of like structure, 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 which I honestly feel like has served me well in life because I do, you know, I, I sort of did the whole like corporate thing and then um, was working in sales and marketing. And it's, a you know, development for a nonprofit is sort of a natural feel better about yourself step to take out of sales and marketing. <laughs> so, but Preach you know, a lot of it is I'm, as I'm sure you I know. do both at the same time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Crazy same. and insane. It's yeah. <laughs> and it's so many of the principles really apply across the board, right? Where you kind of got to look at it, which kind of goes back to the party thing. It's, you, you have to look at like, what, what do people want and, and what helps kind of elevate the general energy in the community. So, um, but yeah, anyway, so I was in a, I was actually married, um, although it wasn't legal at the time for 10 years in my entire twenties. So I had that feeling of like coming out at 21 and then immediately like legitimizing it by being like, and now I'm with someone for the rest of my life, um, who is an awesome, totally awesome guy. And we're still great friends. Um, but we kind of at around 30 realized like, he was like, Hey, I think I want to move to California. And I was like, Hey, I think I want to move to New Orleans. And so, um, we, we did that. So I feel like I had my like 30s and my 20s and my 20s and my 30s you know i was like ooh, i get to explore like completely different relationship models and like what it means to be polyamorous and what it means to like explore more of yourself and like to kind of embrace like hey kink is okay and like all of these you know kind of things that the perfect you know honestly what better place than new orleans right which is the you know you have Northern access to colony of like French, Spanish, you know, <laughs> America. It just it's, it doesn't feel like it's part of the U.S. at all. So uh, when you were growing up, yeah, with your mom being the German Catholic, did you grow up with Catholic guilt or? Oh, did you, am, I, am I sitting here with Catholic guilt? Absolutely. Yes. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Why did I say something wrong? No, I'm just no, no. <laughs> <laughs> all of it. Yeah. All of it is wrong. <laughs> yeah. No. I, that, I mean that that was that was a big thing, and I had. I mean, like my actual coming out experience was not. I would say the best. Although I have to give my parents credit because they have moved a long way since then. I don't know that they've honestly moved into like celebrating me identifying as queer, but I think that they are very tolerant and sometimes celebrational. (laughs) Um, But yeah, no, that was a, I got the whole, like, you're going to burn in hell conversation, you know, which was, you know, I wasn't Catholic, but I was sorry, baby. So I I totally understand. Yeah. Yeah. But honestly, you know, at, at, it was interesting because, you know, within six months of that, I was in a relationship with someone where it, I think the model of it felt very comfortable to my parents. So, like, they were like, oh, we're meeting in-laws and doing all these things. So, I think there's some, like, deep, like, current of resentment about not having grandkids. But other than that, that's really where – that's all that it comes down to that they're still really pissed off about. You know what I mean? <laughs> they're happy that you're happy, yes? Yes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. 
Um, so anyway, so yeah, so New Orleans was amazing. And I was there for seven, like formative, wonderful years. And then completely randomly, which I'm a big believer in this because I, actually out of college, I randomly moved to Baltimore for no reason other than the movie Pecker had just come out. And I like love uh, John Waters. And I was like, well, of course I should move to Baltimore. Go meet John Waters. <laughs> yeah. And then I was like, wait a minute, this isn't a John Waters movie at all. <laughs> this is a deeply divided, really awful kind of. Yeah. Anyway, uh, but Baltimore's Baltimore. God love it. Um, anyway, so kind of did the same thing with Memphis where it was like, you know, I was uh, living with someone who uh, I was like, hey, you know, I had an offer in my house. I was working for myself. They were moving to Memphis. So I was like, let's move to Memphis together. And uh, so randomly landed here. And then magically within a few months, um, went to Friends for Life to, in the position of a grant writer, kind of thinking like, oh, I can sort of, it was a position that was a full-time position, but I was like, I'm totally going to pitch them on doing this contract. And cause I had all these other contract stuff. And then I met Diane Duke and the rest is history. Cause she just moved here from Los Angeles. And both of us had this moment of like, let's do big things in Memphis. That would be fun. Or at least try <laughs> that. I think that that phenomenon happens so often Two transplants mm-hmm. or a transplant and a long time Memphian come together to create something like, because I think Memphis, I think about so many parts of Memphis are creating, are actively creating culture right now in this moment. And like you were speaking earlier, there are other cities where maybe it's not stagnant, but maybe it's just not like they're already established. Right. And they already have, you know, the calendar filled out throughout the year. Mm -hmm. We are still really working to, to bring our community to the forefront. And in the past two or three years, like it's there, that's there. And it's continuing to grow. You know, you're starting to see so many queer friendly events and queer led events all over the town. And And, I think, and it's not just a checkbox right? for many people now used to, that might've been it. Like they were like, okay, let's get the queers in here, you know, check it off. We're diverse, whatever. (laughs) It's very, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and nonprofit organizations and for-profit organizations, like sometimes uh, people of color and queer people, that's it. Like you, yeah. you're in their space for one night, and then mm-hmm. for the rest of the year, they can be like, "Well, you know, we did that. We're supportive and inclusive, without really wholeheartedly like getting Being to know our community." Yeah. Be, yeah, exactly. It's more than a checkbox. Sorry to go on a tangent. Hey, no, <laughs> I have a question. I have sure. a question. Because I just interrupted you. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> Your father was a Elvis impersonator. He's got to be happy as hell that you moved to Memphis, Tennessee. <laughs> of all you the know, places. I think the answer is both yes and no, right? Because he was he's happy, but then I think also it kind of like he's like, wait a minute. I'm Elvis. Louisville is Elvis's hometown. What are you doing down there with that imposter? Graceland, right? So, <laughs> so yes and no. But uh uh uh, what, actually, what I was going to say to your point just a minute ago, which which I think is 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 a really good one, is the greatest majority of people too. I feel like in Memphis, and I'm curious what you all think about this. Really, is embracing that, and they're also looking at it not in a, uh, which is I think the case in the nonprofit world. People tend to get real territorial, and it's like, well, this is I'm swimming in this yes. lane, you're swimming that lane. We can't have this same lane. But I think right now, what's happening is like everything that's happening, like. We are all kind of in this together and looking for opportunities to have the work that we're doing dovetail, which is awesome. And it's great. And I think it also really fosters new talent, which is totally where you come in. You know, and I think uh, Aubrey, as I'm pointing over here on radio um, and, and, and I mean, other planners and like, you know, I mean, something that we really try to do at Friends for Life is to make sure that, you know, if we're throwing a big event, we have an event coming up on June 1st. 
what we're doing is having the bartenders of that event all represent a different brand from each of the different nonprofits that provides LGBT services. And a dollar of every drink that you go to that bartender and order from goes to that nonprofit. So it's a great way to kind of help raise funds for the community while also doing that. That's cool. And also a huge shout out to Minglewood because I think they're a great example of these big quasi corporate spaces that are like saying, Hey, we want to work with you. We want to make this happen. How can we make this happen? Which is both, both honestly self-serving, right? Because they're business yeah. and they didn't make money, but they're doing it in a way where it's like, we want to be a resource to the community. I mean, their hearts in the right place. It's if awesome. it's a symbiotic relationship, yeah. that's wonderful because yeah. then everybody takes home a slice Absolutely. of the cake. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And we have tons of cake in the queer community. <laughs> we, have, we have more cake than you can eat. It's true. <laughs> Let them eat it. Yes. yes. <laughs> you beat me to it. So we've talked about how you got here. We've talked a little bit about, about coming out. Tell me a little bit about the future. What's, what's coming up? Well, I am. Um, there's some, I think, very exciting things happening on several fronts. So in my personal life and in my job, I feel very passionate about certain sort of pet projects. And one of those projects is about um, the stigma around HIV. Because very personally, when I was in New Orleans, I dated a guy for a year who was, it turned out he was HIV positive the entire time. And his viral load was really, really, really high. And I was, I met him when I was in Louisville and I had quite not yet moved down. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to go get tested. You get get tested. And I never like was like, oh, show me your paperwork or anything. So we were in a relationship and had like lots and lots and lots of sex. And he turned out he was like very, very, not just positive, but almost, he, he was almost, and he it almost um, converted from HIV to AIDS. Did like he know that? Was that? He did not know that. But he had like, in retrospect, he thought he had like, or or he told me he thought he had oral cancer, but it was like, you know, he had like thrush in the throat and all this. It was very advanced. So I, when all of this came to light, it really exposed for me what stigmas I had in myself. Because like up till then, I was like, oh. I mean, I wasn't like public about this, but I thought in my own head, like I probably wouldn't date someone who's HIV positive because I was like, I don't know. Or I probably wouldn't like even have like oral sex or I just was completely uneducated about like how people transmit and what risk factors are and all of these sorts of things. And it just completely opened my eyes to like what a sort of asshole attitude I had about the whole thing. And so I, that's sort of the moment where I really became passionate about working with the HIV community. And uh, it turned out that I was myself negative still, um, which was a, sort of a lesson about risk factor too, which I don't think a lot of people think about or necessarily know about. Um, so one, all the how this ties to the future is um, I am super excited to say that um, all of these exciting, awesome events and fundraisers that we're doing are helping to fund a the first ever, first of its kind, HIV stigma survey that is not focused on people who are themselves positive and living with HIV, which is very important, but those studies have been done, but the people who are not HIV positive and to kind of create a baseline of research to say, you know, how do you think about HIV? Do you think about HIV? Um, you know, what are the way, how did you first hear about HIV? Because I can remember being like eight or nine or 10 years old and my friend telling me there's gay men spitting on vegetables in grocery stores to give people oh, AIDS, damn. you know? Yeah. And it's like, it's Th- just thumbtacks and yeah, um, yeah totally. uh, gas stations. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was right. my hometown. Yeah. So part of the survey is how did you kind of, when, when did you first you know, first think about HIV or AIDS and how has that evolved and kind of, do you know anyone who's positive? Do you even think about this at all? So there's five or six sections to this. What's exciting about this is that it gives us something to measure the level of stigma in different communities in Memphis that then we can compare results to so we can show progress year over year over year. What I want to do with this is to make this 
a national survey, especially in the South, because the top 20 markets for new HIV transmissions are all in the South. It's moved right. off the coast into the South. We're number eight. Um, was going to be my question. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Number eight. Um, the unfortunate uh, top 10 list for, <laughs> for, for Memphis. But, um, but uh, what I'd love to do is to like, look at us and then look at Birmingham or look at us and look at Little Rock. And see what other agencies and nonprofits and communities are doing that we can replicate and maybe what we're doing that they can replicate. So the impact for this on a national front is really exciting. And, I'm and that partnership and information sharing, once again, a nonprofit, often the territorial aspects of it. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, I come from museum studies and I'm in museum education. So that wasn't always in my wheelhouse, but I was always very aware of kind of these um, – rivalries Mm -hmm. that would appear across several nonprofits that were doing something that was maybe not even that similar, maybe even just kind of sort of similar or in the same ballpark. So like facilitating that and continuing to grow that type of connective connectivity, I think is so important because that like, I think about the way that people frame our world. It's like, we live in this hyper competitive world, blah, blah, blah. And like, I think that that's, really bad framework to work from, mm-hmm. especially because so much of our work deals with um, human beings right. that we're going to be in the same physical space with human beings that we love, respect our friends with. Um, I just think that this is a great place to try that connective tissue out mm-hmm. and strengthen it. Richard, um, Richard and our community is really good at doing that. Richard Douglas Jones is one of our comics in, in Memphis. And he makes this joke about millennials. Like they're not even afraid of AIDS anymore. You know, like it's not even on their radar where I grew up in a period. I watched people die. Right. You, you know, and so there is that attitude. Is there not? I mean, there's um, there is, I think, a the, the three. Well, I would love to put a I would love to come back at this exact date in time next year and like see what those surveys say. But I, my, my hunch is that to your point. There are people that are like, oh, I didn't even, I thought HIV was cured. You know, people have this sort of wow. idea of that. Excuse me. And then people are like, oh, well, I don't, it, you know, it doesn't really matter that much anymore. Um, or it's because it's not a death sentence, quote, yeah, quote, treatable. anymore. It's treatable. That's what they say. It's right. treatable. Yeah. So um, I, I think that, uh, and also it's interesting because the kind of challenges that we face around PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis or its brand name Truvada's. People may know it, um, which is the one pill once a day HIV prevention drug that I'm on and totally advocate for everyone, including all the ladies out there. Um, I think that uh, people have this attitude of like either, well, I don't want to take a pill because that makes me feel old or they're like, eh, uh, you know, it's, hey, I take lots of pills every yeah. <laughs> morning to old keep man, from shimmying and old shaking. Man, old woman. In yes. the <laughs> provider community, it's crazy the level of stigma, which that's actually, you know, the survey is divided into like really? really specific targets. The provider audience is one of them because it's a lot like, um, like, um, the the pill was birth control was in the seventies for women. It's people like, well, Shame. it's gonna it's gonna make you more promiscuous, right? This is this is this is all about sex. I wish, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so there's and and that, and that pushback also I think happens with a lot of people who really have kind of this like self stigma around even like being gay or being queer or coming out, where it's like, well. People have this, I, I think, internalized sense of shame sometimes in the South and especially in the Bible Belt and especially in Memphis. Yeah. Internalized homophobia. Oh, I, I'll, I'll tell you what, something oh. that we've all that we've all encountered, mm-hmm. which was something that I was very shocked by when I got out into the community. I was like, whoa, what is this section of mm-hmm. people's minds and hearts and spirits? And why? Where? How did we get this way? 
what were you going to say? Oh. I was going to say, I think, I think it's very interesting that you were saying that the highest um, new rates for HIV are in the South when it, the South is the part of the country that has the least amount of comprehensive sex education. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So it's absolutely. So, and promiscuity mm-hmm. in the South is all due to inexperience because these children are growing up without any type of education other than abstinence. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like telling a kid with a chicken pox not to scratch. Like it doesn't work. Absolutely. Right. And then there's no, not only just preparation for being a sexual person, which is completely natural, but how to take precautions, how to be responsible, all of that is left out. I mean, all the STD rates are super high in the South. Like Mm -hmm. syphilis is rampant in Georgia, right? Because they're not teaching education, sexual education. So I'm not surprised at all. And, you know, to your point, where you see the highest levels of STI uh, and HIV rates is a combination of um, abstinence-only education, high rates of religiosity, you know, where, where churches have a lot of influence, particularly conservative churches, and where there's a lot of just like baseline racism, institutional oh. racism and everything. I mean, that is like the magic cocktail of making just huge amounts of STIs and HIV transmissions happen in a, I mean, here, here's a great number to think about last year. There were 13 new cases in San Francisco here. It was like over 310. Are you serious? Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Sorry. Crazy. (laughs) Uh, Actually, that was really good timing. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you, hold time out. I'll tell you what really fucked me up as a kid besides Christianity um, (laughs) was uh, my grandfather. My step grandfather was a quadriplegic. And all my life, I was told growing up that it was MS. When I became an adult, I found out the real reason. It was untreated syphilis. Oh. Wow. And that man laid in a hospital bed for probably 10, 15, 20 years, couldn't have no use of his arms or his legs, couldn't see, and had a transistor radio propped up against his head. And that was life. Unbelievable. No. My yeah. God. And I think the thing to kind of sort of book into that is – and I think you, you were really hitting on this care is the idea of sex positivity. We have got to be able to be talk about sex in a positive way, talk about sex at all, because honestly, like until we can have open conversations about that sex happens and is completely natural and fun, and you can do it in a lot of different ways. We can't have a conversation <laughs> that really is the comprehensive conversation about protecting yourself in whatever that may look like for you in the kind of relationship you're in. So yeah, I think that's, that's a, the root of it. Because if you don't have the education, the educational foundation, just of like, what is your body like? What, mm-hmm. you know, because in some places they don't even teach kids about normal body functions. Mm-mm. Like that's <laughs> like pooting that's, on stage. Yes. Like pooting <laughs> on stage. Like I have a deep feeling of shame from my pooting problem, um, but I'm, I'm working through it. I'm working through, but without that base level education, like how do we expect these kids to be able to go out into the world and advocate for themselves is even as somebody that, you know, I was raised by YouTube and the internet and forums. And like, there was a great forum when I was a teenager called Chad's boys.com, which sounds um, not very educational, <laughs> oh, Uncle Chad. But, well, but it was, <laughs> but it was, it was a wonderful resource. I don't know if it still exists, but it had an awesome forum that was filled with other teenage queers who were like all across the globe, being like, "What the fuck is happening?" <laughs> and and that was that was something that was really precious to me. But even then, 
you know, as I reached adulthood, like being able to advocate for myself, mm-hmm. such as like, what are my boundaries? Mm-hmm. What are the things like yeah. when it comes to like, how am I going to respect other people? And especially how is my partner going to respect me? I had no level of reference really for, and I, you know, and I was treated very badly at times as I'm sure many of us, you know, we all go through those relationships where we have our not this moments. Yep. Um, I think that we could die, like we could so much better prepare people to advocate for themselves if we had proper education just starting out. Absolutely. Well, and you know what I, I always think about this is we have got to all collectively come to the understanding that porn is the greatest sex educator in any market right now, but especially in the South. And yeah. so I think well, that, I mean, look at, look at where it's being used the most. I know. Well, which is, I mean, I think it's manifesting in kind of interesting ways. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you all know this, but like coming into like, well, it's changing, right. It's changing very rapidly right now. Because I think that you have like kind of this negative, obviously side of it, where if you're, if, if, if you're looking at the way that, you know, gender is constructed or you're, or you're kind of looking at the way that, you know, like sort of this idea of sex and violence sort of like working together, or there's just this idea of like body shaming, body positivity, all of this. Those are, that's sort of the shady side of the street, but the sunny side of the street is that you've got a lot of people who are seeing a wide variety of kink, for example, in a positive light. And that's not, and not, and not in a shaming, I'm going to just do this on the side. Nobody's going to know about it. And then, you know, I'm not going to go ever go get treated for syphilis because right. it's just, there's too much shame around it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So I think that there, there are positive sides to that. I mean, I wish that we had like, a $5 million grant to like invest in a porn company that is all about uplifting body types and, take, and taking care of education. People. Right. Mm-hmm. And so. advocating for their own workers. Absolutely. Like the yeah. way that, that porn actors, well, just uh, porn actors are sex workers. Mm-hmm. The way that they're able to advocate for themselves um, is changing right now. There are a lot of very important conversations that are going on, but, um, Speaking this of is, important conversations. Uh, speaking of important conversations, <laughs> everybody, let's take a break and then come back with our third guest and talk to her some. So can we all take a break real quick? The OAMnetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Muffy, have you been blown away with our guests so far? I have. I have. Put your headphones on, Lisa. Oh. <laughs> so you put, Do I have to put, listen to you? Yes, yes. That's Damn. that's what this is all about. <laughs> I was having a good day, Ma. <laughs> Most people do until they see me. <laughs> or don't. Or don't. Um, but so we are back and we're going to pick up with our final guest of the afternoon. Miss Kara. Hey, sister. So my darling, first of all, how do we get a straight person on the state show? I don't understand. Well, we have many- a straight person books, the queer people for shows. It's mm-hmm. true. <laughs> and does such a fabulous fab for all of our listeners mm-hmm. out there. Like, Kara does such a fabulous job when she is running the oh, show. Oh hell yes, she does. Uh, anytime that I've got to work with you, I walk into the room and I'm like, okay, Kara's here. I feel safe and encouraged, <laughs> and like things are going to be okay. Because rest assured, leading up to me walking into the room, I have been melting internally the entire time. I am very well of the melting that comes into the door when Moth walks in. <laughs> like here's your here's your quiet space. Go over there. Yeah. You're good. Yeah, please. Like I need that moment. <laughs> Before going and doing whatever I do on stage. 
What do you do but, on stage? Uh, all matter of things. I do a lot of like arm wiggling, <laughs> a lot of really wide eyes. And sometimes I, I like yank my eyelashes off and I'll put them on a table like, oh, I'm done with this. I'm done with that. But yeah, nails, yeah, that's what I nails do. Nails go flying. Yeah, nails go. We bite nails, spit them at people. Yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. and people always cheer. So I guess I guess it's a nice thing. I bite my nails too. What do you think I have foot surgery for? <laughs> oh goodness! <laughs> oh, that is so wrong. <laughs> uh, oh, 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 oh. Foot fetish is looking for a way out. Oh, that God. one. <laughs> All right, well, let's let's not distract or Ms. detract. So Miss Kara, tell me. Tell me about how you grew up and where you're from. Okay. So I was actually born in Jackson, Tennessee, but um, I only lived there for like six months. So by the time I was six months, we moved to Memphis and then my dad got transferred. He worked for healthcare. Um, So we got transferred to El Paso, Texas, and I lived there until I was 18. And then I immediately fled. Um, (laughs) Why? Why? It's so nice and sunny in Texas. Lots of sand. So I lived in El Paso, which I would say is not Texas. Right. Because it's literally on the border of Mexico and New Mexico. It's eight hours from the next closest major city in Texas. So um, even though I went to college for a year and a half in Corpus Christi, that was still 11 hours away from my hometown. And it was in the same state. So I immediately was like, El Paso is kind of very similar to Memphis, where you either leave right after high school or you're pretty much here. Right. And Plant you your roots down. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so El Paso is very much like that. Um, and growing up in El Paso was amazing. It was the majority of it was, um, you know, Latinos. Um, and I am um, Mexican and British uh, myself, so I kind of fit in there. <laughs> um, and it was completely Democrats. Like, even though it was a very Catholic oh, community. Oh, it's a blue dot, like it's Memphis. The, it's a blue dot. So it's kind of similar to the way Memphis is, where it's very Catholic, but very Democrat Mm -hmm. um, as far as voting. Um, And then um, so at 18, I went to Corpus Christi. I uh, went to Texas A&M in Corpus Christi, which is a school on an island. And that's why I went. (laughs) Um, And I was there for a year and a half. And then my father got transferred back because I have two um, sisters that um, grew up with their mother here in Memphis and they were married and started having kids. So my parents offered to pay my out of state tuition if I wanted to come with them. Oh. And I had never lived in the same city as my sister. So I, I took the opportunity and moved to Memphis in 2002 and I've been here ever since. Um, so I moved here for family and kind of discovered my, a, a totally different type of family, right? I, I grew up in El Paso. I had the same friends pretty much my entire life. And then moving to Memphis, I didn't, I knew other than family, I knew one person who lived in Memphis that I wasn't related to. So it really forced me to get out and find my place. And I'm not going to lie. It probably took me nine years to find my place in Memphis. Memphis can be something that I talk to a lot of people about is Memphis can be a little hard to get to know at first. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that part of that is because like nobody ever really thinks of Memphis as like their destination first and foremost. Right. And then secondly, like everything like we, the word click comes to mind. Like yes. Memphis can feel very clicky. Like there are these very um, specific uh, places for each group of people. And, Right now, I'm starting to see, I hope that 
we're all starting to see kind of a breakdown of that and starting to see all of this wonderful collaboration. But when you first get here, it's so easy to feel like you are so completely alone and so completely fucked. Yeah. And it <laughs> because was, of that. it was completely, I, I don't, I was shocked when I got here first because everything's green and I grew up in a complete desert, right? I grew <laughs> up at the, preach. I understand. Yeah. I grew up at the end of the Rocky mountains in the middle of the desert. Like we didn't have grass in our front yard. We had decorative rock beds like, and then I move here and it's green and I'm also allergic to pretty much every insect in Memphis. So I'm constantly taking allergy medicine. And then this year I found out I'm also allergic to the air in Memphis. So I'm on even more medicine. So I also feel very old now. Um, But um, we all take our pills in the morning, but then, you know, growing up in a, in a community that, um, was run by basically by Mexican Americans, you know, and then moving here and seeing the division, like how divided it is. I mean, it's literally, it's not just the blacks and the whites, but it's also the Mexicans and, and, you know, those that are coming from Korea and Vietnam, they all live in their own little segregated communities. And that was a lot for me to take in. Um, and it still bugs the shit out of me. Um, so th- that was a, a major culture shock. And that's why I think it probably took me so long to figure out where the melting pot of Memphis was. And for me, it was definitely Midtown. Um, everyone has different backgrounds in Midtown. So I felt much more comfortable to be myself than I lived in Cordova for seven years. <laughs> I mean, my neighbors used to call the cops on my dogs because they barked. So... Moving to Midtown, I finally got to like be myself. So I've been in Midtown now for seven years and I will probably never leave Midtown if I can help it. Amen to that. Um, But in the process, I, uh, I've met a lot of friends. I have um, my partner in crime, uh, Megan Rubenstein, who does Lady Parts Justice Tennessee with me. She called me up one afternoon. Um, this was in 2014. She called me up and said, hey, they're doing some really crappy things with abortion rights in New Mexico, and we're going to do a phone bank. Do you want to come? And I was like, sure. You know, I didn't even think about it. I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll come. So we made um, calls to people in New Mexico from here and then um, followed up and, and Planned Parenthood said, hey, we want to start community action teams which are basically groups of friends that will get together and do phone calls, pack condoms, um, do get out the vote work. And so we formed one. And um, by, by the time we had started doing that, that's when they started the um, amendment one in 2015. Um, so uh, in case you guys haven't got it, I'm really big into abortion rights mm-hmm. and sexual, sexual rights. Cause that's what it is. Like whether you are, you actually have parts that are female or whether you don't, you love someone who has parts that are female. It is, it's their sexual rights. Mm -hmm. Like there's no other way to really talk about it. In my opinion. Um, Although people yell at me and tell me I'm wrong all the time. But um, so we started our, our, our action committee and then they started the amendment one and amendment one is the, was the first constitutional amendment to the Tennessee constitution that actually took away a right it had never been done before for any right it had never been taken away through a constitutional amendment. 
And what they did was they said that you don't maintain the right to an abortion yourself. You maintain the right to an abortion through your elected officials. And so basically what this did was it said that for any abortion regulation, they no longer had to put it up for a public vote. So the elected officials could make the decisions on behalf of their constituents. So they didn't take away our right to abortion. They took our way or uh, our right away to vote on abortion restrictions. Now, um, the, first of all, the language is extremely difficult to understand. Um, they are the, um, I don't like calling them pro-life because I don't feel like they really care about the life mm-hmm. that I would, I refer to them as pro birth because they really don't care what happens after that. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I would like to call them, um, the beginning of Gilead. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. well, did did yes. anybody else get the email from Kamala Harris saying like, this is not an episode of Handmaid's Tale, everybody. Uh-huh. Like, this yeah. is what's actually happening. Um, I was like, ooh. And, and, and they are very well organized. The groups that, that kind of fight under that pro-life flag, which is not what they are, um, in my opinion. They are very well organized. They're very well funded. And they have been working towards the goal of overturning Roe versus Wade since it passed. Mm -hmm. And they've done it very slowly and very deliberately. And a lot of people are getting, they're like, oh my God, I can't believe they're trying this. They've been working towards this since Roe versus Wade started. Um, There's uh, some really good documentaries that I'll I'll give you guys um, that you can post. Um, But basically they started with Ronald Reagan and they started infiltrating the Republican Party because they started basically indoctrinating um, the Republican Party by saying, you guys are religious. These are religious holdings. Um, you know, you're anti-gay. You're basically anti-anything but white men. Um, I'm really speaking to that base's worst sentiment. Yeah. Like, why would you want to marry a woman who could abort your child? I mean, really? Um, and so they they always speak through fear. Um, And so they started infiltrating that during Ronald Reagan. And it's just, they can fundraise like no one else. Um, And so that's how they get the politicians in line. And then they start, they, they pre-write all their legislation. So they start, they'll start in a state that they think that the legislation is the weakest where they can actually win. And if it works, they try the next state over. Alabama. Yeah. If it doesn't work, they change the language and then try the next state over. Um, they really believe I've actually gone undercover. Um, You're a super spy. I was during uh, the 2015. I went undercover to the, um, the pro-life uh, meetings. I did that for about three months because I used to be a church leader so I can wow. speak their lingo. So I dyed my hair was bright purple. Like Lisa's at the time. I dyed my hair black, got out all my old church clothes, my cardigans and my flowered dresses um, and my cross necklaces. I've got a few of those. Wow. um, Talk about cross-dressing. Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) I covered up all my my tattoos and went undercover. Uh, Get that dermablend in there. uh, And it, I mean, they speak nothing but fear to to the people that believe in them. Uh, in what they're trying to accomplish. They always have. So um, also in 2015, I reached out to a group called Lady Parts Justice um, run by Liz Winstead. She is the um, 
cre- she's the co-creator and head writer of The Daily Show. Um, and she had quit uh, comedy uh, in 2014 and started Lady Parts Justice. So she basically um, was like, I'm, I'm going to use my ability and my contacts to just talk about reproductive rights. And abortion is part of that. But beyond that, it's also about equality for everyone. Um, and so she started a nonprofit. And so we, uh, they were doing some really cool things. They were doing, um, events that I had never seen before. They were like, they're political carnivals where you could throw, they'd had people dress up as different, terrible political figures and you could pay to throw cream pies in their face. They had, um, you are speaking my language yeah, over there. They had, into this. they had ball buster, which we've done at a lady parts taco festival <laughs> where it's Donald Trump and you put, um, blue balls and you give people can pay to throw, um, darts at the, <laughs> at the balloons and uh, taped to his crotch. Or in Moth's case, you can just tear his head off with your teeth. <laughs> still, still have the video. That was in my, I put that in an audition video Did you? recently. Love it. You know, there's still a hidden uh, Trump head somewhere behind the stage. I think of that all the time. I'm oh like, in 20 years when the high tone like rips up that little part of the stage to redo yeah. it, they're going to find a part of Trump's head with my teeth marks on yes. it. Yes. So, so Kara, right. when we were off the air for a moment, you were saying that you're not as afraid of all this legislation that's being passed right now or promoted because. Okay. um, We can dive right into that. So the laws in Alabama, Georgia, um, the one that they're, um, I don't know if it's actually gone up for the final vote in Tennessee, the heartbeat bill. I, of course I'm concerned because who wouldn't be concerned, but I am not terrified of what they're trying to do because they've done it in a way that was very predictable. And the fact that the majority of the nonprofits and the people that are fighting it seem to be caught off guard is a little, that is scary to me, not what they're actually doing. So they are specifically Alabama. They um, are going to jail doctors who perform abortions after six weeks. Um, and there are no exceptions for incest or rape. Um, Which is so Byzantine. <laughs> yeah. Like, but they did that uh, on purpose. They didn't leave it out because they actually don't want there to be exceptions for rape or incest. They did it because it automatically, automatically makes it unconstitutional and challengeable. So they did that so that they will be challenged. They don't expect the law to take effect. And the hope is that this will make it to the high courts. Yeah. Now, so the, our hope is that it'll get struck down in the lower courts. Right. Continue. So they will. So the step is the ACLU and Planned Parenthood will sue. They've already filed the paperwork. Um, it'll go to court. There'll be a hold on the law. It will not take effect in six months. Um, and then the groups and the government will say, okay, well, we may have lost that first fight, which I, d- I think they will because it's unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. Um, so they'll lose and they'll take it to the appellate court. Um, and then depending on what happens in the appellate court, then they'll go to the state Supreme Court. Um, and whoever wins or loses there will then file to take it to the Supreme Court. And then the Supreme Court can elect or not elect to actually Take a look at the case. So question, as someone who knows very little about political strategy, it just strikes me that 
is this is the timing of this not very very strategic in that all this will be happening just like moments before the 2020 election is that what the plan is here they're hoping that it's probably you know, that that it will be the elect that they're trying to make this the election issue for 2020 mm-hmm. i honestly don't think that they will get to the supreme court by 2020 I think that they have, if that was their goal, that they've underestimated the timeline. They probably should have started this the moment that Trump was elected, knowing that he was going to get at least one Supreme Court pick. Now, um, people have asked me, well, you know, now we it's stacked conservative on the Supreme Court. Well, a lot of people don't understand that they can pick and choose which cases that they take. Mm-hmm. Now, both of them have said that they would be willing to hear a challenge against Roe versus Wade, but neither of them have actually said that they would overturn Roe versus Wade. I think um, uh, Kavanaugh, I think he would overturn it, but I also think he's a mountain of garbage shit. (laughs) Um, I don't know how an accused rapist ended up on our Supreme Court. Um, I mean, or as a president, only with perfect timing. Yeah. I, um, I'm not going to lie. I had I had several friends go to jail protesting during his hearings, and I was devastated for them. Um, I'm devastated for all of us, actually. But um, I don't think it's going to happen in 2020. And I I'm trying to figure out. I'm. It sounds like this big conspiracy theory, but I'm trying to figure out if they're trying to make abortion the issue because of how badly other policies are going right now. Mm-hmm. Well, and so where my thought was with that is, do you think that they're trying to counterbalance this probably perceived movement among Latino Americans, right, or the Latin mm-hmm. community, um, with the whole Catholicism alignment with pro quote quote pro life thing? You know, is that is, is it sort of a like vote tr- trying to make it a vote your conscience thing? Do you think, or I think it could be, um, but more than. In my opinion, they don't. They will reach out to the Latino community, but they will not be able to do it successfully because they can't speak to them on their level. Mm-hmm. Like they have no idea what these people go through on a daily basis. Um, religion only gets you so far, and ain't that the truth? Yeah, and um, specifically with Catholicism, I would say it's probably. 60, 60 percent of Catholics are okay with abortion in most cases. Um, probably not for themselves, but for others. Um, and then 40% are, you know, completely 100%, no birth control, no abortion, have babies and have as many as you can. Um, Go forth, bear fruit. Right. So um, it'll be interesting how they play that. I, I'm i thinking even more conspiracy level. Um, there is a recession coming. And if people haven't realized that yet, you're, you're in for a rude awakening. Um Stack up your dollars right for, now. Yeah, I work for a company that sh- that um, is responsible for shipping 4% of the world's GDPR every day. And when our numbers take a big dip, there's something weird going on. And the tariffs with China are really going to affect uh, the economy in the United States, which is going to then cause more people to, ha- to consider whether or not they need an abortion going forward. Because they may not be able to afford to properly care for these children that they mm-hmm. are going to maybe have to have. Um, before we jump further down the conspiracy, um, hole. Well, I was about to say, can we 
because I really want to continue this conversation mm-hmm. because first of all, it is so apparent. Now when this podcast comes out, some of the, there will be new things will have mm-hmm. come to light, but can we jump into the next episode with this language as we, as we round table? Yeah. Cause I want to extend this conversation. Um, but just to wrap this episode up, what are some of the things that you are working on over the next couple of months? Yeah, so we are um, rallying the troops for sure. Um, we are trying to get anyone who believes in um, comprehensive sexual education, um, equal gender rights, um, abortion, uh, access, um, horm- like hor- access to hormone treatment, basically anything having to do with comprehensive reproductive rights. Um, whether you identify as a female or you love someone who identifies as female, we want to try and um, get everyone together. And we're putting together, we're, we're currently, Megan and I are going to be working on an online guide for how you can help. Um, and they, some of the things are very simple, like using medical terms when talking about sex, mm-hmm. using the word vagina, using the word penis, using the, you know, talking about intercourse and using the word abortion and normalizing the medical terms Mm -hmm. so that it doesn't become um, a conversation about, you know, someone's talking about their vagina and they're using the word tootawally. Like, no, (laughs) no. Um, And I, well, I do want to speak. We get, we get asked a lot. We get asked a lot about why is the term lady parts justice? It seems very um, divisive. Um, and I just want to talk about that for just a second because it goes back to the medical terms. The reason that we were called Lady Parts Justice is because there was a politician who was fighting an abortion bill in her home state, and she used the word vagina, and she they actually stopped the entire session, stopped her in the middle of her speech, and said, that is offensive language. Please use the term Lady Parts. She was not allowed to use the word vagina during her government presentation. Wow. Was this in Maine? Um, I believe it was Michigan, if I'm not mistaken. And Liz is going states. to kill me if I got that wrong. Right. Um, <laughs> but so that's where it was called Lady Parts. It was wow. supposed to be funny. Um, so we actually are going to be rebranding Lady Parts Justice. So stay tuned. Really? So when that comes out, I will um, I will let you guys know. Please so. come back. Big vagina. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so, but anyways... Um, yeah, so it, it, like I said, we're putting together that the what you can do. It can be from how to write to a politician. If you are just not into activism um, on a on a person to person, it just becomes when you're talking about subjects, make sure you're include you're using the correct terms. Something as simple as that can make a huge difference in the fight for reproductive rights. Mm-hmm. Is then we're all using, you know, if we can get everybody kind of on the same page language wise, that yeah. makes the language that we're using. And so people much more don't effective. blush when you say the word penis. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. if there we should be past that yeah. at this point, we're if not. They, if people but we are embarrassed be. to talk in medical terms, we have a lot more work to do than just access to birth control, condoms, hormones, and abortion. <laughs> you yeah. know, yeah. we'll never get there. If we mm-hmm. can't talk about vaginas and penises. All right, Moth, on that, we should, uh, 
wrap this one up on that note so everybody please stay tuned within the next week or so we're going to come out with part two of this episode where us and our friends are going to be roundtabling about many of the subjects that we've spoken on and expanding on them but until then know that me and lisa love you we always will and anytime that you need some family time you can come and see us so take care we love you and we'll see you soon bye everybody say bye. bye Family Time Podcast is an OAM Network production. Available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and the OAMnetwork.com. Hosted by Lisa Michaels and Moth Moth Moth. Produced by Gilward. Logo and design by The Legend of Shelda Designs. The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMnetwork.com. Power to the podcast.